Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and I love all things tech. And Tech Stuff listener Matt asked if I might do an episode or two, or maybe three or four, about the Amiga series of personal computers. And Amiga has a pretty fascinating history with lots of ups and significant downs. And I've definitely touched on Amiga a few times in episodes about the early PC era, as well as the episodes I've done about Commodore, because Commodore acquired Amiga. But this computer line deserves its own set of episodes because it's it's not just fascinating from a technology standpoint, but it plays into a lot of other things that were happening in tech in the 80s that are also really important and interesting all on their own. So the story is likely going to take a few episodes to tell because of how complex it is and how much the Amiga's story plays into these other stories of other companies and big events that were happening in the personal computer and video game industries. But I think that's part of what makes this all fascinating because it gives you an opportunity to understand some of those other topics from a new angle within the context of Amiga. So I know it's going to be at least three episodes because I've got two to go right now. Probably going to be four. We'll see. Also, if you really want a true deep dive into the history of Amiga, because this is peanuts compared to what some folks have done. And if you want to know more about all the people involved with Amiga, I have a recommendation for you. There's a website called Ars Technica. It's one of my favorite websites, especially for technology. And over at Ars Technica, a software developer named Jeremy Reimer has written what I consider to be the definitive history of Amiga. It's so far a 12-part article series. And the very first article published on August 1st, 2007. The most recent part of this series published on March 29th, 2018. So it's a series of articles that have spanned more than a decade. Now, when I pulled this 12-part series over into notes so that I could print it out, it was about 75 pages. And the word count was around 42,500 words. So while I'm going to be talking about Amiga for several episodes, and you still want more, that's where you need to go. There's also a couple of spinoff articles I did not include in my notes, but they are related to Amiga. So if you're really fascinated, that's the place to go, I would say. So the Amiga, it was one of the lines of computers that emerged in the early 1980s, back before things had really shaken out so that they were essentially a face-off between Apple and IBM. And then later on, various IBM PC clone manufacturers, and then later still, Microsoft. So it was always Apple versus IBM, then IBM clones, and then Microsoft in particular. But back in those days, there were a lot of different competing computers that were on the market. And I've talked about those in previous shows. Uh, There was the Trash 80 or the TRS 80 from Radio Shack slash Tandy. There was the TI-99 slash 4 from Texas Instruments. There was the various computers from Commodore, including the Commodore 64, which was the best-selling PC of all time. And those were all in that same space that were there when Apple had its Apple II come out and before even the IBM personal computer had shown up. 
J minor is often credited as being the father of Amiga. J minor was born in Prescott, Arizona on May 31st, 1932, and as a kid, he became interested in electronics. He enrolled in San Diego State College, and while he was in college, there was an enormous event that happened. North Korea invaded South Korea, precipitating the Korean War. That happened on June 25th, 1950. So J. Minor would then go and enlist in the Coast Guard, and he continued studying electronics. Once he was discharged from the Coast Guard, he moved back to California with his uh, wife. He had, he had met a woman and married her in 1952, and then he enrolled at the University of California at Berkeley, where he earned a degree in electrical engineering in 1958 with an area of focus in designing generators and servo mo- motors. Kind of interesting. But his first gig, according to an interview that he gave to the magazine Amiga User International back in 1988, was to develop a computer control console with a video display. Even though his expertise, at least his scholarly expertise, was in generators and servo motors. So he had to go back to teaching himself. He started to read from books and learn logic design, and how to lay out transistor circuits. But he said the nice thing was that in those days, it wasn't too complicated to learn from a book. You could still actually buy books and become self-taught and be able to work in that space. Miner's resume after college included several companies, including fledgling ones that were sort of a sign of the future for California in technology and kind of a uh, a foreshadowing of the birth of Silicon Valley. And Jay Miner found he really liked designing electronics. He wasn't as interested in other parts of engineering, and so he never really felt tied down to any one employer if there was another interesting opportunity to do design work on the horizon. So he kind of hopped from company to company. In 1974, one of Miner's friends, a guy named Harold Lee, convinced Miner to come and check out the company that Harold Lee was working for. He was an engineer for a little company called Atari. Now, Atari is going to end up being a very important part of the Amiga story. Nolan Bushnell had founded Atari in 1972 after he had designed an early arcade game called Computer Space. The company at that time was known for building arcade games like Pong and Space Race. Miner would design components for many of Atari's early arcade games. And then he became the lead chip designer of a new project in 1975. And that project's goal was to create a reprogrammable gaming machine. Now, up to this point, all the gaming machines were custom-built for a specific game. The circuitry of the machine was the game. But in the face of competition, Atari wanted to create a gaming machine that could accept some form of media, which would turn out to be cartridges, and run that media interchangeably so that you could switch out between games using the same hardware. This project would evolve into the video computer system, the VCS, also known as the Atari 2600. One of the challenging aspects of building out this kind of computer was keeping the costs low enough to make it a marketable consumer device, which meant finding the right processor to act as the CPU for the machine. It needed to be powerful enough to do the job, but not so expensive as to drive the price of the final product out of the market range. And ultimately, Atari settled on the Mose Technology 6502 chip. And to be fair, 
I say CPU, CPU is being very generous for these video game consoles, but it was serving that purpose. Now, the 6502 chip was not particularly powerful. It's an 8-bit processor, but Miner's design got the most out of its capabilities and made the VCS a viable product. Not just viable, it became the runaway success of the late 1970s. The Atari VCS would debut in 1977, and by the next year, it was already the must-have item uh, on everyone's list. J Miner would move on to design new products for Atari's uh, line, and this time they were, he was focusing on personal computers, which were also emerging at this time. In 1977, there were only a few personal computers that were available on the market outside of the kits that you could purchase to put your own computer together. So Apple had been founded in 1976 and had introduced the Apple II in 1977. Uh, Radio Shack slash Tandy had the TRS-80 in 77. Commodore had the PET or PET. Did not yet have the Commodore 64. That would come later. Digital Research had created the CP slash M operating system style uh, interface, which Bill Gates would later leverage when his company would create MS-DOS. But no one knew where the industry was going yet. It was slowly transitioning from the realm of hobbyists and bleeding-edge adopters to mainstream consumers. J. Miner would use the 6502 chip as the main microprocessor for a pair of computers from Atari. They were the 400 and the 800. And as you might guess, the 800 was a more powerful computer than the 400. The Atari computers could display a maximum of 40 colors on a screen simultaneously, which today obviously is nothing, but back then it left the nearest competitor, which would have been Apple at that time, in the dust. J. Miner designed chips to handle sound and graphics as well, something that would foreshadow a future era of expansion cards that were meant to do the same thing. That wouldn't really take effect until the 90s. In 1978, Nolan Bushnell sold his company to Warner Communications. Ray Kassar, the new CEO of Atari, would clash with the company's programmers in a big way. The programmers wanted a share in the success of their work. They wanted royalties. But Ray Kassar refused, and in addition, Atari chose to write off the costs of developing the 400 and the 800 systems uh, up front. So all the cost of developing went right into the budget uh, at the front of it instead of being distributed across the lifetime of the 400 and the 800. That meant that on the books, it looked like the company had not met its profit goals. And because of that, it was not going to trigger bonus payments. Programmers were not going to get paid bonuses because at least on paper, Atari was just barely eking out a profit when in reality you could argue that it's because they front-loaded all of the development costs at the very uh, beginning of the year. Some of the programmers felt that they were being cheated, that they were being abused, and people began to leave Atari. One of those programmers was a guy named Larry Kaplan, and he will also become very important in the Amiga story in just a moment. But upon the 400 and 800 release, Atari did something a little weird. The computers, which were capable of playing pretty neat games for that era, were not marketed 
as multi-purpose machines that could do gaming, because Atari did not want to cannibalize their console sales. And so the 400 and 800 were marketed as serious machines meant for serious stuff like business and academics. Despite limiting the marketing reach for the product, the computer models sold pretty well. And here's a fun fact. The Atari 400 PC would serve as the innards for Atari's 5200 console, the successor to the Atari 2600. But the software written for the two platforms was not really compatible. All right, I've got more to say about the era that would uh, launch the Amiga. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. After the 400 and the 800, Jay Miner wanted to move forward and really had his eye on a different microprocessor, and this one was from Motorola, not most technologies. It was the 68000. So the 6502 was an 8-bit microprocessor, but the 68000 was a 16-32-bit microprocessor, meaning it could handle much more complicated processes than the 6502. And it was being used in microcomputers and would become the chip that would power Apple's Macintosh uh, in the mid-1980s. So Jay Miner pitched a computer system to Atari management that would rely on the 68000 chip. It would be the most advanced computer, especially in terms of graphics and sound systems. It would be able to play incredible games. But Atari management shut him down. In addition, Atari was starting to do the same thing to engineers that it had done to programmers previously, meaning the company was refusing to pay out bonuses. And Jay Miner did not want to keep doing the same thing, that is, designing systems for the 6502. And he was frustrated that his voice wasn't being heard. He felt that the company wasn't valuing his work. He didn't like the fact that he wasn't going to get paid his bonus. So he decided to put on his walking shoes and he left the company. So after he left Atari... Jay Miner joined another company called Zmast. This company made special microprocessor chips for specific types of products. And the specific type of product that Miner worked on were pacemakers. So he worked with Zmast for three years. And in 1982, he got a call from Larry Kaplan. And that was that Atari programmer I had mentioned earlier who had left Atari in a huff in 1979. After Atari, Larry Kaplan had gone on to join a brand new company called Activision. In fact, he he joined so early that typically we call him a co-founder of Activision, Uh, although Encyclopedia Britannica actually says that he was not a true co-founder but joined shortly after the founding of the company, but he helped define that company. And I'll have to do a full episode or maybe a, a short series of episodes about Activision someday because that company has continued to be incredibly important in the video game world. But the original incarnation of Activision was meant to be a place where developers would get recognition for their work, including getting credited on game boxes and receiving royalties uh, as a result of, of good sales for their titles. And these are good things. But Larry Kaplan got disenchanted with this company in 1982. He wanted to go into developing some hardware, but Activision did not, the other execs at Activision did not want to go in that direction. They wanted to focus solely on developing game titles. And so Kaplan would leave the company that he had joined in 1979, and he reached out to Jay Miner to see if Miner knew of anyone who might help him get funding to get a new business off the ground. 
So Jay Miner takes Larry Kaplan's call and he introduces Kaplan to his own boss, Bert Braddock, over at ZMast. And together, these three begin to put together a plan for Larry Kaplan's new business venture. They got an office in Santa Clara, California. They hired away a vice president over at Tonka Toys to be the CEO of this new company. And the plan was that J Miner would design chips for the hardware. ZMast would take the designs and build those chips. And Larry Kaplan would design games to run on that hardware. And this is the business they would form. They would have some sort of video game console or computer business and they would all work and make money from it. They originally called this venture High Toro, uh, or really it was just High Toro, I guess, because they thought it sounded kind of like a high-tech company, and also it sort of paid tribute to being a company born out of Texas. But this process was going to take some time, putting all this business together. And while they were working on it, Larry Kaplan, the guy who was asking for this in the first place, started to get cold feet. He might have worried that maybe... The space was getting way too competitive in creating hardware for the video game world. Maybe he was worried about the prospects of this business being able to hold its own. But for whatever reason, in late 1982, he bailed on the whole plan. Not only that, but he decided to return to Atari, the company he had quit three years earlier. And apparently Nolan Bushnell had presented a very attractive offer, so Larry Kaplan was out and that left J. Miner and ZMast holding the ball. So Miner was asked to serve as the chief engineer for Hytoro, and he agreed to do it under two important conditions. The first was that he wanted to create a video game machine around the 68,000 Motorola chip. And the second was that the video game machine should also be a computer, not just a video game console. Now, this was in late 1982, and the landscape was very different from what it would be in just one year. In late 1982, video game consoles were seen as money-printing devices. There was just a ton of cash in video games. Companies were rolling in it, and everyone at the time was convinced that the party was never going to stop. So investors were willing to get behind something like a video game console— But personal computers, on the other hand, were still seen as a luxury product that very few people owned. Investors were less keen to get behind those products. So the company decided, Hytoro decided, that the wisest decision was to pitch Hytoro first as a video game console company, that the product they were making was a video game console, and then just kind of hide or ignore all the computer elements when it came to trying to get investors. Jay Miner had one standard that he personally wanted to meet with this new machine. He wanted to make a personal computer that would be capable of running a really good flight simulator on it. He had a friend named Al Pound at a company called Singer Link who had shown Miner military-grade flight simulators, and Miner thought these things were amazing. So he wanted to create a machine that could run something like that on your desktop without having to have the multi-million dollar equipment to do it. Now that meant that Miner needed to build out a computer that could be both a stripped-down video game machine and expandable into a high-performance computer. Now, Jay Miner was a bit frustrated that they weren't just taking the kid gloves off and going toe-to-toe with IBM, because IBM was just, at this point, trying to get established in the home computer space. 
They had dominated in business, but were just starting to get into home computers. And Miner thought, we actually have the opportunity here to take the lead. However, the general thought was that video games were where the money was and that it was better to focus on that part of the market and to let the computer stuff come later. Jay Miner would eventually say that was probably the right decision for the time just because it would have been very difficult to get the financing, the investment for going after IBM. But he still said he was sad that they were never able to jump on that because the IBM PC, when it came out, it was monochromatic. It was crazy expensive. It had limitations on memory. These were all areas that Miner saw as opportunities for them to take over. But it was just not meant to be from an investment standpoint. So... They decided to divide operations for High Toro into two big categories, and J Minor would head one side, which would be the chip designers and engineers, the, the hardware experts, and they began working on prototypes for chips to go in this future computer. And they didn't have a way to fabricate chips to test their designs in a way that was economically feasible. So... Instead, they first would sketch their designs out on whiteboards, and then they would move to build prototypes on breadboards. More on that in a little bit. The other side of the operations was a video game-centric part of the business. The company would make peripherals for existing systems from other companies, namely the Atari 2600, and they would make video games for those systems as well. And this served a couple of purposes. For one thing, it brought in some revenue, while the other side was still working on getting the internal components together for their future video game system slash computer. For another, it almost acted like a front for the business. See, Jay Miner was really worried that if other companies had heard that he was working on a new personal computer design, they might try to do some industrial espionage, snoop in and find out what was going on. And once they figured out what Jay Miner was trying to do, they might try to rush their own projects through their own existing companies and try to beat the fledgling company to market. So one of the products that they made at this time was something called the Joy Board, which looked kind of like a footrest, and it was actually a, a balance board and a control system. So players would stand on this thing, and they would lean in order to control a video game. So like leaning to the left would make your character go to the left. And they actually made a few games, like skiing games and stuff, that would use this control system. Uh, shortly after becoming a company, two really big things would change everything. I'll explain more in a second, but first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. The first thing that changed was that the company Hytoro had to swap out its name because there already was a Japanese lawnmower company called Hytoro, and they didn't want to be confused with it. So they got to brainstorming a new name for this company. Miner reportedly suggested they use Amiga, which is the feminine version of the Spanish word for friend, amigo. So he supposedly suggested this, but also did not actually like the suggestion. It was one of those things that he kind of said, but didn't really have a whole lot of feeling behind. But no one could come up with anything better, so they stuck with it. They made a few games for the Atari 2600 under this company name, and... They made some peripherals for the video game industry, but that only worked for a short time. And the reason I say this is because in 1983, just a few months after the company had 
been coming together in the first place, the bottom fell out of the home video game market. This was the infamous video game crash of 1983. And I've done full episodes about this. So I'm just going to give a super short overview here to explain what happened. Leading up to 1983, there were a ton of companies that were all in the home video game space. You had console companies, you had Intellivision, you had Atari, you had Coleco, and others that were all creating video game consoles. You had tons of third-party game developers of varying degrees of skill and business sense making games for these systems. And then you had executives who behaved as if video games were always going to be a gravy train. And in some cases, they were making truly astoundingly dumb decisions, such as making more copies of a game than there were consoles out on the market. If you have 500,000 consoles out on the market and you make a million copies of a game, that's 500,000 extra copies that don't go anywhere. So this all came to a head in 1983, and eventually the market collapsed in on itself. It could not sustain this sort of activity. The video game crash had an enormous effect on the company that was just about to become Amiga. It was making that transition from Hitoro to Amiga. Video game companies were folding left and right. Companies like Atari, which had been really cash-rich just a couple of years earlier, now found themselves overextended and in possession of massive inventory that they could not move. And Amiga's business of selling to that industry was pretty much wiped out. Moreover, investors were now terrified at the thought of backing a video game console. So... In 1982, J Minor was told, we have to market this as a video game console first and ignore the fact that it's a computer because otherwise no one's going to put money behind it. In 1983, the same investors who were gung-ho on supporting a video game console now were terrified. So they asked, hey, do you think maybe you could take this thing you're designing and instead of making it a video game console, could you upgrade it so it's a personal computer? Well, that's what J Minor had in mind all along. And in fact, what he had been working on, so it suited him just fine. It validated his arguments, and the team continued to focus on building out the chips that would go into the first Amiga computer. Dave Morse, who was the CEO of the company, decided that the chips all needed to have code names, which would protect the company's intellectual property. Anyone overhearing the employees talking about these chips would just hear the code names, not instead of whatever the chips actually were. So he decided that all the chips should be given women's names. So the three major chips in the Amiga chipset were called Agnes, Denise, and Paula. The computer's code name was Lorraine. So you had Lorraine the computer with Agnes, Denise, and Paula as the chips. The design team held frequent meetings and everyone was free to pitch ideas at those meetings, arguing for features they felt should be included in the chipset. To reach a consensus, the team instituted uh, an unusual practice involving toy baseball bats made of foam. So if you pitched an idea and people didn't like it, they'd bat you over the head with the, the, the bats. They'd just hit you with these foam baseball bats. It was harmless, but according to Jay Miner, it was a humiliating experience. Miner had read about and taken a course in a special type of coprocessor called a blitter, also known as a blitter circuit. 
A blitter, which is B-L-I-T-T-E-R, can manipulate and move data inside a computer's memory quickly without having to tax the CPU. So it works in parallel with the CPU. It can copy data from one block of memory, it can move it to where it needs to be, and the CPU can just continue its own operations without having to expend any resources to do this. And this blitter would allow the Amiga to handle much more advanced graphics without overtaxing the CPU compared to other computers on the market. Miner also ended up working on a design for what was called a hold and modify mode, or HAM mode, H-A-M. This was a way to kind of trick the system into showing more colors on screen than it was technically capable of doing just based on the amount of memory in the machine. So the memory served as a limitation, a limiting factor. You couldn't show too many colors because the amount of information you needed to represent the colors, hue, its brightness, its, you know, its opaqueness, all of those things, those values would take up memory space. And memory was expensive. So to keep costs down and maximize efficiency, Miner and his team started to work on this design. And ham mode would allow programmers to designate a line of pixels as a single color and then make changes to just one of the three properties that define that color, as in hue, saturation, or luminosity. In this mode, the Amiga computer would be able to display 4,096 colors, which was light years ahead of the competition. They also designed what they called the copper chip. This chip had three different instructions on it, all in order to exert direct control of the computer's display. And the chip could also access any part of the other display chips. It would allow the Amiga to have multiple windows open side by side at once, even when each window had contents displaying at different resolutions, which is pretty phenomenal. The chip codenamed Agnes would contain the blitter and copper chips and was in charge of handling direct access to the computer's memory. Denise was a display chip that would produce sprites. And a sprite is a two-dimensional object that hardware makers uh, can use to create a composite of the sprite along with a background. It allows the sprite to move across a background without the need to having to redraw everything every time the sprite moves. Uh, Paula's job was as a dedicated sound generation chip. It would control four channels of audio, two on the left stereo channel, two on the right stereo channel. That would give the Amiga much greater sound reproduction capability than competing computers in the early 1980s. So this design phase slowly moved from whiteboards to breadboards. So now it's time to talk about breadboards, what that means, and kind of wrap up this episode. A breadboard is a base for building circuits and electronics. Uh, it was also known as, or it is also known as a plug board because it's a board into which you can plug chips and wires. Today's breadboards are really super nice. You don't have to solder connections between components. You just plug everything in and the breadboard itself has a little layer of metal on the underside that allows connections so you don't have to actually solder everything together. Uh, but back in the day, you did have to do soldering. The reason why that's really important is that today, because you don't have to solder everything, you can reuse breadboards. You just unplug stuff and you plug new stuff in. So you can very rapidly test out different uh, circuit layouts, different designs. Breadboard circuits are much, much larger than the finalized type of circuits that make their way into electronics. It's sort of the macro scale of what you would eventually plan to produce. So these chips that 
Miner's team was developing, uh, when manufactured, they would all fit to plug into the motherboard for the first Amiga computer. But at this time, on breadboard form, they were huge. And by huge, I'm talking about chips that would measure several feet along one side. Each chip would have eight breadboards connected together to simulate what the final chip would do. So Agnes was eight breadboards. Denise was eight breadboards. Paula was eight breadboards. Each breadboard would hold 300 MSI logic chips. So for all three of the simulated chips, for Agnes, for Denise, for Paula, collectively you had 7,200 separate logic chips for these simulated chips. And they all had to be wired together. All those breadboards had to be wired together. All those components had to be wired properly. So there were a ridiculous number of wires connecting everything in each of those simulated chips. And as you can imagine, that made connecting and moving the breadboards really difficult to do because one wrong move and you would introduce a system crashing bug by knocking loose another connection. Then you'd have to track down which connection was loose and reconnect it properly. The team hooked up their simulated chipset to a 68,000 processor, and then they fired it up, and it worked. But that was just the hardware side. In our next episode, we'll pick up by talking about the software that was in development to run on this first Amiga computer, and we'll also look at how the company nearly got swept up by Atari after finding itself in financial trouble. And we'll learn the crazy Game of Thrones-like story involving the company Commodore as well. And it really does get pretty crazy. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, a person in tech, maybe there's someone you want me to interview or have on as a guest host, let me know. Send me an email. The address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Maybe you are getting a little chilly you know, as the weather is starting to cool down, you could probably use an extra shirt. I got a suggestion. Go to tpublic.com slash techstuff. We've got designs that look great on shirts, and you should probably buy one. Also, every purchase goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 